fellow feasters in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience as we prepare for Season 7 of the Gospel Feast podcast. Our author and historian has been busily working on a very special book, Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed. You've heard the story of Esther, but do you really understand it? I think you will find this book illuminates things that you never knew were in the simple story of Esther. This is the Gospel Feast podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back. We have been on an incredible journey together, rediscovering the book of Jonah. It might appear to just be a simple four-chapter book in the Old Testament that, frankly, I always thought really held no surprises. But that turned out to be very wrong. Uh, Jonah is an astonishing book, and I can definitely see how it witnesses to the truth that our God, our Father, had a great plan for his family, and that that plan is known to us now because it was restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. So we have one chapter left in Jonah. Let's see what surprises still wait in store for us. Well, we have one chapter left in the book of Jonah. Let's do it. The logical progression of the story seems to be that Jonah obeyed the command of the Lord to warn Nineveh, but did the least amount required of him. Then he went outside the city to wait for its destruction. Perhaps it was the lowing of the animals and the cries of the people for forgiveness that Jonah heard, or perhaps word came to him from the city of their repentance. However, he found out, when Jonah realized that Nineveh would be spared, he was not happy. Jonah 4.1 But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Again, this is a very odd response. Jonah's mission had been a complete 100% success. Nineveh was going to be spared. Jonah's very personal relationship with the Lord, further proof of his standing with heaven, can be seen in the prayer he grumbled. It is here that his real motivation for running away the first time is revealed. And he prayed unto the Lord, and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying, when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. In other words, having discovered that the Lord was going to spare the city, Jonah admits that he ran away from his mission, not due to cowardice, but due to faith. Jonah knew that the Lord was so kind and quick to forgive, that if Nineveh would give the Lord any humility, he would give them another chance. It was this knowledge that caused Jonah to reject his mission. He wanted Nineveh to burn. The fact that Nineveh was going to live meant that Jonah wanted to die. Why? Because Jonah was a patriot. He knew that life for Assyria meant death to Israel. Nineveh's repentance would not last forever. In time, the Assyrian Empire's lust for world domination would resume under Tiglath-Pileser III around 745 BC. He invaded northern Israel and deported many Israelites away from their homes to be strangers in new lands. His plan was to destroy cultural identity by mixing up the nations. These ten tribes of Israel were resettled primarily in Caucasia. Their descendants today, primarily the birth tribe of Ephraim, would become known as the Caucasians, 
but that is a subject of another study. King Sargon II finished the siege of Israel's northern capital, Samaria, that had been started by Shalemeser V in 722 BC. Later, King Sennacherib would shut up the beloved King Hezekiah of Judah in Jerusalem as a bird in a cage. King Ashurbanipal led Assyrian warriors to Egypt and caused the downfall of Thebes before the Lord had had enough of them. The prophet Nahum predicted the eventual destruction that Jonah longed to see. The Lord's marvelous poetic word through Nahum is something we will yet explore. But in short, Nahum said, Nahum 1.8 But with an overrunning flood he will make an utter end of the place, Nineveh, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry. All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brood of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? All of this came to pass when an overflowing flood did make an utter end of its place. Nineveh was destroyed while her inhabitants were drunken like drunkards. Nineveh was unprotected as fire devoured the bars of her gates. Nineveh never did recover from her injury. She had no healing. Despite her greatness, Nineveh did fall with remarkable ease, like figs falling when a tree is shaken, landing right in the mouth of the man wanting to eat them. History states that in 612 BC, King Nabopolassar of Babylon joined his army with the armies of the Medes and the Scythians and captured the Assyrian citadels in the north. They laid siege to Nineveh, but her mighty walls were too strong for battering rams, so instead they tried to starve the people out. Nineveh was so well designed that it could remain self-sufficient within its walls, but a famous oracle had said, Nineveh should never be taken until the river becomes her enemy. Here's what happened. After three months of the siege, the rain fell in such abundance that the waters of the Tigris inundated part of the city and overturned one of its walls for a distance of 2.27 miles. Then the king, convinced that the oracle was accomplished and despairing of any means of escape, to avoid falling alive into the enemy's hands, constructed in his palace an immense funeral pyre, placed on it his gold and silver and his royal robes, and then, shutting himself up with his wives and eunuchs, in a chamber formed in the midst of the pyre, disappeared in the flames. Nineveh opened its gates to the besiegers, but this tardy submission did not save the proud city. It was pillaged and burned, and then razed to the ground so completely as to evidence the implacable hatred enkindled in the minds of subject nations by the fierce and cruel Assyrian government. And this. Nineveh was laid waste as ruthlessly and completely as her kings had once ravaged Susa and Babylon. The city was put to the torch, the population was slaughtered or enslaved, and the palace so recently built by Ashurbanipal was sacked and destroyed. At one blow, Assyria disappeared from history. Nothing remained of her except certain tactics and weapons of war. The Near East remembered her for a while as a merciless unifier of a dozen lesser states, and the Jews recalled Nineveh vengefully 
as the bloody city, full of lies and robbery. In a little while, all but the mightiest of the great kings were forgotten, and all their royal palaces were in ruins under the drifting sands. Two hundred years after its capture, Xenophon's ten thousand marched over the mounds that had been Nineveh, and never suspected that these were the site of the ancient metropolis that had ruled half the world. Not a stone remained visible of all the temples with which Assyria's pious warriors had sought to beautify their greatest capital. Even Asher, the everlasting god, was dead. The complete loss of Nineveh from the map would later be a source of mockery by Darwinists wishing to prove the Bible was fiction. It is said that while searching for the ruins of Nineveh, Europeans asked the locals about their names for the region, and were told that one prominent hill was called the Hill of the Prophet Jonah. Further exploration eventually revealed the lost palace of King Sennacherib with its 71 rooms and colossal base reliefs. Also unearthed was the famous library of Ashurbanipal, with 22,000 cuneiform clay tablets. Lucky for humanity, much of these made their way into the British Museum where they were safe from the hands of Muslims and others who would destroy anything and everything to rewrite history to their own ends. But now you know the truth. Jonah was not a coward. Rather, he hoped to save Israel by denying Assyria the chance to hear the gospel and repent. Despite this, it is insightful to see how the Lord handled Jonah. Our Lord knows the thoughts and hearts of all men. He knows with perfection how to succor and manage all people. We can learn much about his ways by what happens next. The Lord simply asks his prophet. Jonah 4.4 Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? A clearer translation would be, Why are you angry for having done so much good? Jonah did not answer. Instead, he marched out of the city walls and built himself a sort of shelter to watch and wait. His attitude seems to be as if he expected, and still hoped to see, Nineveh's destruction. But the story gives us a few more interesting clues. So Jonah went out of the city, and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city. There is an important feast in Israel commanded by the Lord from the days of Moses. It is called the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, the word is Sakoth, and it is the same word Jonah's author used to describe the booth or tabernacle that Jonah built. Now, it's entirely possible that Jonah simply built a sukkah in order to have something nicer than nothing to sit under while he waited to see what would happen to Nineveh. But it is also fair to speculate that Jonah knew what he was doing. The ancient Israelites were deeply steeped in their traditions. Like the Native Americans, they saw the world as a living entity where patterns and cycles had a form of sympathetic, mystical magic, for lack of a better word. Let's take a tangent to explore the High Holy Day known as the Feast of Sakoth, or Tabernacles for a moment, and see where it leads us. Israelites understand that the happenings at Mount Sinai, after the exodus from Egypt, was in fact an Eastern-style wedding ceremony. Jehovah, as a male god, wed himself to the house of Israel forever, naming her the new Eve, or Zion, because she would be the new mother of all living. It was clear that after this wedding there was going to be a future great wedding feast when the marriage would be consummated and bride and bridegroom would be joined as one flesh forever. This union would be blessed with eternal life because where male and female are joined together, there is increase. Increase is life. 
In order to prepare for the second coming future celebration feast, the great I Am instituted several high holy days or festivals in Israel. The word festival in Hebrew literally means rehearsal. Festival is a bad English translation. Annually, the heavenly bridegroom expected his bride to rehearse the great wedding feast and thereby be able to carry it out in holiness when the time appointed arrived. This same custom continues in many cultures today, where secular wedding rehearsals are suffered through before the ceremony to make certain that everyone knows where to stand and who's going to carry the pagan wedding ring, who's got the tissues, and where the made-up vows are going to be taken, and on and on. The culmination of rehearsals led up to the rehearsal of tabernacles, and that's the idea. In the course of the bridegroom's return, after his arrival and judgment of the bloodlines of the family of man, the king would invite all the nations to come to Jerusalem and acknowledge his right to rule, as well as his ownership of the earth. It is said that so many people would come that there would not be enough places to house them, so they would build temporary shelters called sakuths. So let's end the tangent and return to the story as Jonah would have known all of this. These are things that we have needed. It expounds on the scriptures that were always there. It is not outside the realm of our speculation that Jonah was making a statement with his booth. He may have been saying to the Lord, You are the true king of the world. Remember your people Israel. Remember that you promised that the royal line would not depart from Jacob's family. If you let Nineveh live, it will mean the destruction of your promises. The Lord's response to the booth further supports this. Jonah 4.6 And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head, to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the gourd. It was part of the rehearsal of the tabernacles for the men to build their sukkah with a leafy shade to protect the gathering family from the heat of the day, as well as to be a symbol of the Lord's abundance. If Jonah was attempting to make a statement by his actions, then the Lord was here as well. The word translated into English as gourd is the Hebrew kikayon, which today is known as the castor oil plant. It grows from 8 to 10 feet high with only one leaf per branch, but that one leaf can commonly be more than a foot large. The collective leaves give good shelter from the heat in the Middle East. It grows rapidly, but is known to fade if suddenly injured. As such, it was a fitting symbol for the Holy Ghost. Quick to fill and expand the human temple with light and knowledge, but just as quick to shrink back when offended or ignored. As bridegroom of Israel, it would have been the groom or father's duty to shade his bride. The Lord shaded Jonah's booth. The pleasant shade and symbolic bounty that the Kikayon plant provided did relieve Jonah's sorrows, but the Lord was not finished teaching him. Note that it was grief, not selfish anger, which Jonah felt. That next morning, But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Again, the Lord as Father finished the booth, giving it the shade and symbolic abundance a true father in Israel would give to it. Then he took it away, with his breath from the east. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest to grow. 
which came up in a night, and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? In other words, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. The Lord was pointing out that Jonah took joy in the simple comfort of leafy shade, which was here today and gone tomorrow, for which Jonah had enjoyed at no labor to himself. And yet the Lord's labor and glory was in the salvation of his children, all of his children, house of Israel or not. The great annual recital of Jehovah's kingdom was for all the children of men, even the ones hated by his chosen flock. The lesson is becoming increasingly useful in our day. As modern members of the kingdom of God, how many times have we looked upon the insanity of the Gentiles and their ungodly traditions and wished God would hasten his day of judgment? In post-9-11 America, many have struggled watching our Arab brothers and sisters act with impunity and insanity. Who among us has not wished that God would drop a meteor, even a small one, on the Middle East during the month of Ramadan? But this is not the Lord's way. He will succor and teach, bless and prod his children, until any who can be saved will be saved. He is also mindful of his animal creations and does not delight in their mistreatment or sufferings. This is the ultimate moral of Jonah, and a surprisingly apt lesson for our modern world. President Spencer W. Kimball, the twelfth president of the Lord's Restored Church, summed it up thusly. We are a warlike people, easily distracted from our assignment of preparing for the coming of the Lord. When enemies rise up, we commit vast resources to the fabrication of gods of stone and steel, ships, planes, missiles, fortifications, and depend on them for protection and deliverance. When threatened, we become anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. We train a man in the art of war and call him a patriot, thus in the manner of Satan's counterfeit of true patriotism, perverting the Savior's teaching. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. We forget that if we are righteous, the Lord will either not suffer our enemies to come upon us, and this is the special promise to the inhabitants of the land of the Americas, or he will fight our battles for us. This he is able to do, for as he said at the time of his betrayal, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. We can imagine what fearsome soldiers they would be. While the official account leaves Jonah sunburned and windswept on the outskirts of Nineveh wanting to die, tradition leaves us with a few more bits and pieces. One is that Jonah returned home to get his mother, and then moved to live out his days in Tyre, Another account was Jonah's mother dying during the famine and being buried by the prophet beside the famous oak of Deborah. He then went and settled in the land of Edom, where he died, but not before he gave this sign to Jerusalem. At a future day, when you see a stone crying aloud in distress, it will mean that the end is very close. And he said that when the Jews saw the Gentiles gathered around Jerusalem, it would result in the city being razed to the ground. This has already happened twice. Jonah is mentioned two times in chapter 14 of the book of Tobit. Here Tobias rejoices upon hearing that Nineveh finally fell at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and Ahasuerus comments that Jonah's desire for the city's end had finally occurred. 
Many locations want to honor the hosting of the tomb of Jonah. Visitors to Israel and other parts of the Middle East have a wide choice of competing tombs. Among the claimants are the Hill of the Prophet Jonas in the old ruins of Nineveh near Mosul. Here travelers in the 1920s were able to see Jonah's tomb covered in words from the Quran with bones of his dead whale hanging above it. British visitors would point out that the whale skeleton on display resembled a badly pieced together swordfish and so embarrassed the Arabs took the bones down. Jerome wrote in his 4th century commentary that the real tomb was in a small village near Sapphires. Also, Mushad in Israel still claims to hold Jonah's tomb. North of Hebron in the West Bank is another Nebi Yunus. The highest mount in the West Bank also claims another tomb of Jonah. Yet another of his tombs sits on the coast of Lebanon. And there is still another near Amapia in Syria. There is one more on a hill on the north side of Ashad. It is currently occupied by a lighthouse. That makes eight historical tombs. And lastly, perhaps this. Jonah was from Galilee. Peter, the Lord's chief apostle, was a Galilean and was born Simon bar Jonah. Bar and Ben in Hebrew mean son of. Were Peter and Andrew claiming their heritage as descendants of one of the city's most famous citizens? As they say of the deeds after a battle, only the gods can say for sure. But Peter's surname was son of Jonah, or Jonason, if he'd been Danish. Okay. We have completed the entire text of Jonah, one of the shortest books in the Holy Bible, but a wealth of information. If Jonah's book is anything, it is an ancient pronouncement that God is a God of mercy and multiple chances. Only in the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ under the administration of Joseph Smith has this been proven true in Christianity. It is fitting, therefore, that we examine more closely our great God, who is a Lord of second chances, and the great plan of happiness a little bit deeper. Yes, we are very interested in learning about second chances. Uh, all of us have sinned. I would hope we all believe that there is hope for us. But right now, we are out of time for this episode, so we will have to save that discussion for our next Gospel Feasts together. And until then, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, 
but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction, and in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day.